So um, we'll be wrapping up our series here, uh, our mini-series on the need for wisdom and clarity in a complex age uh, in the next uh, week to two weeks. Next week, we will particularly focus upon the application of wisdom in the role of the sexes, of interaction between man and woman, and the idea of sexual identity, what it means to be uh, male, or how it is conceived that you are male or that you are female. That will be a particular applicational effort for our, uh, our, our wisdom series next Sunday. So um, much of what I've been doing is uh, kind of critiquing at the, uh, at the front end, critiquing um, evangelical culture as a whole, and the idea of uh, how wisdom has kind of shrunk to the bottom, and we have lost sight altogether of the need for prudential judgment in the Christian life, in exchange for formulas of success. And that has been a movement for quite some time. And, and, it, and it plays upon uh, people's vulnerabilities. Pick a, pick a lane of vulnerability. Um, and let's say it's financial vulnerability. Well, then um, evangelicalism has a way, and broadly speaking, and broadly critiquing, of curtailing a message that will meet your vulnerability that also somehow reflexively comes back to enlarge evangelicalism, which is known as the prosperity gospel. Um, and it's the same thing in relationships. Let's say that you're vulnerable in sexual relationships, of, uh, again, just between man and woman and, and, and the desire to be married. Well, well, in a great parallel way, evangelicalism can give you a prosperity message for that as well. And it also comes by way of a formula. And then when the formulas break down, which they inevitably do, because we've created them, not God then we then turn typically, and uh, at least what we've been seeing recently in the, at the top tier of evangelical thought life, is the leaders tend to turn and find only one source of blame. You know, spoiler alert, it's not them. It's got to be God. It's got to be the message. It can't be the messenger. And it leads people to believe, yeah, um, Christianity or, or thoughtful Christianity is inadequate. It's led us all down the wrong paths, and we're all disenfranchised now, and we all lack fulfillment now. And again, somehow we miss the fact that it has everything to do with us and the way that we've prepackaged it. And that the Christian life requires wisdom and the application of biblical texts. Not the citation of a biblical text, but the application of a biblical text. It, it, it can't just be um, that, that it's by rote memory, then we cite a Bible verse, and somehow the complexity of a situation is finally concluded, and we can move forward. It requires prudential judgment, which means the mind has to be engaged in the Christian experience. It has to be. And that mind can't just be off-the-cuff engaged. Like, well, I just, I'm a wise person typically. I, I, can, I can get the 411 on any particular situation, assess it really quickly, break it down into a hot take, and move on with some sort of resolve. No. The, the brain, the, the Christian experience can't be filled with hot takes. It, it has to be a thoughtful application because the mind has been shaped by a shaping influence, and that shaping influence is particular. The shaping influence upon the life and the brain, the mind, the heart of the Christian is got to be the word of God. 
and it offers a high-definition worldview to the complexities of life because the source of the shaping influence continues to live on. The word of God is not a word for a time once upon a time. It's living and breathing and active, full of its own capabilities to discern you, the reader, as you come to it. That is, we are tested by the text. Not that we come to test the text. The life of the Christian requires wisdom. And the place of wisdom that we said, the shaping influence is the word of God. And then I spoke briefly about the institutional church and our need of it. That we need, if we're not going to find the formulaic successful, particularly enriching, it's going to be disastrous. Just give it time. It's not if, it's when. The formula breaks down. Disenfranchisement sets in. What does the Christian need? The Christian needs the ordinary over the formulaic. That's its opposing factor. What is the ordinary? Word, sacrament, prayer, and discipline. This is what the Christian, the pilgrim on the way, needs. This is what God has ordained for the pilgrim since the beginning of the birth of the godly. From Adam, Eve, Seth. We saw it in the origins in Genesis. The sons of God. The lineage of Seth. Those who normalized worship. Even through Adam and Eve with Cain and Abel, there was a normalizing of family worship. There was the ordinary over the formulaic. But in a day of internet Googling, we want the formulaic over the ordinary. It's quicker. But it's also shallower. And if world's tide is getting more complex and powerful, what happens in the shallow end when the tidal wave rises up behind you? Just saying that out loud made me think of one time Adrian and I were in the Outer Banks. This is for free, by the way. We, it just came to mind. We were out in the Outer Banks when we were in Divinity School uh, Seminary. Uh, we, we all went out to the beach in the uh, Outer Banks for, for an afternoon. And Adri was walking, and we were having a good time, enjoying the, the, the ocean and whatnot. And uh, we were ri- uh, w- uh, riding waves or whatever. And um, the sea was pretty choppy that day. And um, as Adri is coming in out of the water, just walking t- towards the tent, and I'm sitting on the beach just seeing her come out. And as she's coming out, the water in front of her right is, like, getting shallower and shallower and shallower. And the wave behind her is sucking it all up to take it in and rise higher and higher and higher. <laughs> Poor woman. She just, I mean, but she could not make it. It probably got about shin deep, and whatever was left was up above her, and it just pile-drived her. Um, I thought she was, like, going to seriously break her shoulder. I mean, the, 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 she emerged with, like, sand all down the side of her face and everything. Anyway, that was for free. Because it gives you now, perhaps, a mental image of uh, uh, Christian hot takes, right? So now you can think of Adri on the beach getting pummeled by a wave because she was in the shallow end of a coming tsunami wave. It's very analogous to Christianity in the moment. We're prizing the shallow. And it's going to leave us in the same state that Adri emerged from. Uh, And it's got got, uh, kind of rumbles of that occurring now. So 
now we progress, and then we'll progress once again next week um, into kind of, it's just going to continue to narrow its focus to where it applies, very particularly because the greatest concern that I have, is, uh, and our session has here at Redeemer, as we think of what is a particular application to um, the people of Redeemer and our role in encouraging, shaping, admini- admon- admonishing the people of Redeemer, what, what do we really want each one of us, all of us together, to be particularly on guard against? What do we find to be the greatest uh, concern for our age and, 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 and our time and our place in the cultural tide here and, and our role to minister within it? And what that concern is, is the role of men and women in relationships in a relation to one another, how we relate, what it means to be man and what it means to be woman and how uh, we are to treat one another in those complementary roles. And so we jumped into the book of Proverbs to see the teacher, and we noticed this last week particularly, but the teacher's call to the young pupil, his predominant call throughout the book of Proverbs, particularly in the first section of Proverbs. You can think of the book of Proverbs, you read them. Kind of, it's hard to shape the book because you feel like it's just random sayings, but it's, but it's not. It takes more work to kind of see how it's all carved and shaped and molded. But if I could say book one, or chapters 1 through 9 is like the first major section, and then all the rest kind of builds upon the platform of 1 through 9. And the predominant superficial pleasure, yes, there's a number of them out there, that, that, that we face. There's a number of superficial pleasures. And depending on how we're, 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 we're inclined, uh, our disposition is, our pathology is, how, what homes we were raised in biologically, a number of different factors that draw you into one particular uh, superficial pleasure or vice over another. But the number one predominant superficial pleasure that the teacher warns the student about is illicit sexual relations. That's the number one predominant superficial pleasure that the pupil faces. We were talking in our small group the other night, and it seemed like not a lot has really changed. If anything, it feels like it's escalated. Because it's not just the fornicator or the adulterer who can engage in such illicit activity. That is forbidden activity. But even the individual by him or herself can engage in it through the availability of pornography. And if we think, well, you're making something a bit more out of nothing. No, like I said, read Proverbs, just one through nine, and recognize the weight that the teacher puts upon the warning against superficial pleasure, particular to illicit sexual relations. And then the rationale that serves. So for you then, you hear the teacher. I'm warning you, student, pupil, I'm warning you against a forbidden woman. Now again, it's, it's father, son, teacher, student. And it can just as easily be uh, uh, mother, daughter, teacher, uh, young lady. So, so either which way. The warning still comes the same way. I'm warning you against the forbidden individual. The individual who does not, in complementarity, belong to you. And you say, okay, I hear the warning. I I, I hear the concern. But I'm not so sure there's weight behind it. 
He gives you the weight. He gives you the rationale. Why should I heed the teacher's word to me? Why should I receive it and not reject it? What's the long view on shelving an immediate accessible pleasure that I desire? What's the long view? Because I'm doing a cost-benefit analysis on my urges. Well, last week we saw just briefly that the teacher provides the rationale as this, quote, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. There's your rationale. There is accountability to the human experience. That's the rationale. Well, why would I give up this immediate pleasure for long-term durability? Why would I make that benefit analysis? Why? What's the return? Because you're not the end of all things. There is a God. And he, and then to the church, who proclaims to belong to him through his son. You're in covenantal relations with him. You're in union through faith to him. All that is his is yours. He doesn't come to you piecemeal. You're in through union. All of him and all of his benefits belong to me. Then hear the word in your ethics. Your ways are before his eyes. As one author makes mention of this level of accountability, the weight of knowing you walk Coram Deo, you walk before the face of God. This writer says, quote, this, this issue of walking before the face of God, this issue of accountability is why modern repaganization called the sexual revolution can never be reconciled with Orthodox Christianity. It cannot be. Why, you ask? Once again, why? The student asks the teacher, why can it not? Because you walk before his face. Interesting, the author of Proverbs, once again with the author of Ecclesiastes, states the same, and the books read relatively the same. But he speaks about this same sense of a man's accountability to his creator. That like when you look at the panoramic view of your life from start to finish and where you're at and at which stage and how you're trying to get to the next stage, when you take account of all of that, what needs to be most pressing? The minister of Ecclesiastes says the end of the matter. So this is the very end of his book. And we preach that book. It's a a rich, rich book. I'm sure you've read it also. But at the very end, ever he says, well, I've seen this, I've seen that, I've seen this, I've seen that, I've seen this, I've seen a guy do that. I can tell you the outcome of all those situations. I tried a little bit of everything. I did it a la carte. And I can tell you this, the end of the matter, the summation, when all has been heard. Remember, he's on a quest to hear everything underneath the sun. When all of it's been heard, the end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And he gives a grounds statement. Again, a rationale for why you'd heed that word, that that really is the end of all things, that I live in front of my creator 
and I live in a way that acknowledges the creator and what he says to me for my flourishing. He says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So as I mentioned last week, joining ourselves to the pathway or the noble journey of life in wisdom requires not only an awareness of, but also a submission to the Word of God. On the one hand, as I said, we have to know the Word of God. You you, you can't apply something you don't know. So step one in joining the noble journey is to learn, to know, to be catechized in the content of the word of the Lord. That's got to be the shaping influence on the mind. But as we all know, you and I, as professing believers, there still stands a gap between knowing and obeying. That's, again, another frustration, perhaps, and a challenge to parenting. When you see your own life on display through the pedagogy of your children, that the ability to memorize and know is always faster than the ability to apply and submit to. And so we receive the words of chapter 2, verse 1, in the call for the student to submission, he says, My son, listen to chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words, and if you treasure up my commandments, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Do you see to you as a pilgrim on the way, as a pupil underneath the great teacher, not It's you and me, but as in students of the text, underneath the weight of the true great teacher. Stands to our flourishing a cause-effect relationship that we cannot jettison with any success at all. If you receive, if you treasure up, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. There is a fixed cause and effect order to the wise life. Without which, without acknowledging such a fixed cause and effect order, whereby we go in our own pathway, we cannot flourish. Our relationships cannot flourish. Our homes cannot flourish. The church, Catholic, cannot flourish. Daniel Estes, and I know that means nothing to you, but I want to give proper citation. But I will say this. He produced a superb work in the book of Proverbs. Superb. And in his book on Proverbs, he writes this, and we're going to build on this just for a moment. He says, quote, the root of wisdom, and get this next piece. This is key, and this is where we go from here. Because there is this cause and effect. If you treasure, if you receive, This is what it will require of you, to receive it. Okay, Dad. Okay, teacher. Okay, word. Okay. If you hear it, receive it. Now you treasure it. I need to follow faithfully the word herein. Then, with this application, 
you will know the fear of the Lord. So writes Daniel Estes, quote, The root then of wisdom is the submission of autonomy through a vital relationship to the Lord, which manifests itself in a teachable spirit. You see, how does one know they are submitting to the word of the Lord? What will be the fruit of submission? That indeed, I do believe that there is a cause and effect relation to success in life. And I mean that morally. That I do submit to this. I do assent to it. And I do trust its righteousness. I do trust. What comes from that submission and trust? What will emerge is a teachable spirit. Again, one more time, and then I want to draw your attention to Proverbs 4, 1 through 4, in the text we're in. But the issue is this. Hear, hear what he writes. I think it's superb from the book of Proverbs. The root of wisdom is the submission of autonomy. Someone takes stock of self, recognizes the frailty of self. They submit to they submission, the submission of autonomy through a vital relationship to the Lord. I'm inadequate. You're Wholly adequate. I acknowledge that and I submit my life unto you for your adequacy. What emerges, he says, is a teachable spirit. Notice how the teacher appeals to this. And, and is an example, is a, is a superb example himself of the teachable spirit. Notice what he says in chapter 4. If you're there, I want to just jump, work through this text just briefly with you. And then we'll jump back over to chapter 1, and that's important for our time together as well. But quickly, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 4, look at the appeal of the teacher. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. Now remember, the father-son is just, is, um, the primary role would be father to son within the familial instruction. But it, but it also serves literarily more broadly that, that a teacher speaks to a pupil. And, and, and it's one who is your senior and is here to impart wisdom in life for your success. So now it's generationally. Oh, sons, young people, hear a father's, father of the faith, hear his instruction. Be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. Notice the, notice the turn of the language. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me. And he said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. You see, The example of one who lives wisely is the one who remains teachable throughout their life. One who receives insights from those who have gone before him. You see, he's arguing for generational wisdom. Hear, O sons of today, hear a father's instruction, someone who's older. Be attentive that you may gain insight. For for I give you good precepts. Where did you get them? Where did you get the good precepts you give to me? 
oh, they don't originate with me. I'm not so narcissistic as to take upon myself the mantle of wisdom dies with me. So also was it born. No, no, no. I'm trying to spare you from, from self-testing, from generational narcissism, from evolutionary anthropology, that clearly we're obviously just getting better as time goes on. Anything before us must be subpar. Never were they so advanced as we are now. Everything current is better, and it will only in, continue to increase in clarity and goodness and beauty and in truth. No, he says, I would never say that of myself. Why do you appeal to me to listen to you? What do you have to offer? Well, I'll just say this. When I was young, I sat with my father. And he taught me what I'm teaching you. You see, again, for one to have a posture of teachability... One, to be successful in their endeavors, they must resist, as the teacher says here, you must resist novelty. We could put it upon the teacher's lips, perhaps, of what he is saying to the pupil here, and as the pages unfold, he is saying something to the effect, and perhaps you have heard it said before, be humble or be humbled. Resist novelty, experimentation, generational narcissism. Stay within the great tradition. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. Be attentive that you may gain insight. Well, how do we know we're going to get insight from you? Did it start with you? Is it rooted in what you have to say? Is it rooted in your current hot takes? No, I give you good precepts. Don't forsake it. Where, did it. where did it come? Where did you get it when I was a son? I heard it from my father. He taught me what he himself had been taught. And he said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. You see, But there is a principal challenge to the one who wants to submit and have a teachable spirit to wisdom. Let's say that in your mind, that indeed is what you want. You want to be a person of wisdom and success. You want to be a person who surrenders the autonomy of self to a vital relationship with the Lord, which manifests in your life a teachable spirit so that you can have a moral direction and you can put away all the false teaching of our age, at least reason through it hopefully have success over it by maintaining a teachable spirit to the great tradition of wisdom. Let's say this is who we are as individuals, who we want to be. The teacher now is going to warn us against three individuals who will stand in our way. And I want you to keep this in mind as we just briefly deal with this just for a moment because, again, remember where we started maybe four weeks ago I'll just throw it out to you again before we get reading this particular section of the text that the teacher warns the pupil with. You say, this morning, I want to have a teachable spirit. 
I want to grow in grace and knowledge and wisdom. I want to be able to have a high-definition worldview about the world and its challenges are coming at me. I want this. The teacher says, praise the Lord. Now, I need to warn you. On the noble journey, there are three people that you need to watch out for. And it's this sense of, look over with me just for a moment. Chapter 2, he warns them of these people. He says, verse 10 of chapter 1 is just where it kind of begins. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. This is going to happen. My son, again, prize the fear of the Lord. Pursue it. And it won't all be easy because sinners will inevitably entice you. And he appeals to the pupil, do not consent. There's a role in your life, in other words, to resist. Uh, Back to what I was saying a moment ago, that you are, uh, again, I don't know this to be true, but let's just take it uh, as true on statistical level. If you are the average of the five people that you spend the most amount of time with, how vital those five people in your life really are. It could maybe be numerically expanded out. I don't know. Again, I'm not a psychologist. Don't pretend to be. This is the information that we're given. So the teacher says to the pupil, watch your five people. Why? What harm could they bring? They will entice you. No, I'm above that. No, no, no. No one is. Where did you get that? Just make that up? No. When I was young... With my father. This is the tradition. It remains fixed. Notice the text then about the three types of people he warns us about. Chapter 1, if you're there in chapter 1, I said chapter 2 a moment ago, and I mean chapter 1. If you're there in chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, beginning in verse 20, The teacher says to the pupil, remember, he's got a teachable spirit himself, and he sat in his father's lap and learned the great tradition from his father of the life of what it means to be on the noble journey of wisdom. And now he's trying to impart that to you and and to myself. And and he paints this picture of, of, remember, the journey will be challenging. How so? Well, let me say this, verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. Okay? In the markets... She raises her voice. So you have a a, a picture painted for you, right? There's a woman hysterically running down the market street. She's crying out and shouting to the folks that are there. Oh, some, we may be unnerved by that picture of a lady running down the street crying out. Don't be unnerved. It's the lady wisdom. She's crying out in the village square, right? So the point is, it's obvious. That's the point. It's obvious. Verse 21, at the head of the noisy streets... She cries out. She's not, she's, she's not hidden. She's obvious. Another picture of her obvious nature of cause and effect wisdom in life is she's at the entrance of the city gates is where she speaks. So you get it, right? It, she's in plain sight. The wise life and the noble journey is an obvious pathway. It's not an easy pathway. Verse 22, and this is used to accentuate the deviant nature of the three people we must keep our eye on. 
and we must distance ourselves. Verse 22, here's the rebuke. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. You will discern them. Because I have called and you refused to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. The most important piece I want to provide for you here regarding the simple, the scoffer, and the foolish folk is that nowhere in the book of Proverbs, including here, nowhere, and we'll get to this in just a moment and we'll conclude, but nowhere in the book is folly, simplicity, or scoffing regarded as intellectual deficiency. I really want you to receive that and consider that with me. Nowhere in the book, including here, is folly, simplicity, and scoffing regarded as intellectual deficiency. It's not that someone is simply too dumb to get it. It is an unwillingness to conform to the law of God. That is what folly is. That is what simplicity is. That is what scoffing is. Is It is a willful rejection of the law of God. It is not simply that someone cannot figure it out. God isn't seeing it from the standpoint of Scripture and saying, well, they're just having a hard time. They're really, the, the glass just isn't quite full enough. It is a moral problem. It is a willful rejection of the path of wisdom. You see, the fool, the simpleton, the scoffer is not a victim. He or she lack character. Habits have simply overcome them. See, notice the language just briefly. The simple, what do they do? He says, oh, simple ones, how long will you what? Love being simple. It's not that they just can't get it. They don't want to get it. This the teacher warns the student about. Watch out for the simple. They do not want the wise life. Look out for the scoffer. Why? Because the scoffer, notice how he behaves. The scoffer delights in his scoffing. It isn't, again, that he doesn't know some other way to cope or a different way to behave. He delights in scoffing. Finally, the foolish. Notice the language. How long will the fool hate knowledge? You see, Again, it's not about intellectual deficiency or, as a Christian, you have to be particularly intellectually sufficient. That's not the Christian experience. 
It's a willful submission through a vital relationship to the Lord, which brings about a teachable and humble spirit, whereby you acknowledge your way is not righteous. And his way is. And to do otherwise is not because you cannot, in the sense of you're not smart enough. It's the condemnation is you will not because you're defiant. You love being simple, delight, scoffing, and you hate knowledge. The difference in our lives and where this stacks up just for a moment as we conclude. The difference in our life is being a person of character. I'm speaking to believers now. As we think through our ethical relationships, we think about the noble journey of wisdom, how we ought to apply ourselves to it. What will prevent us from making progress in the pathway of wisdom? What often becomes the the stick and the spokes on our wheel that stop our progress? It's the cultivation of bad habits. Right? I think by the time someone decides who is in ministry and and, um, by the time they're prepared to perhaps hire a hitman to kill their son-in-law... There's been death by a thousand cuts. It's habit forming. It's a shaping influence that rests upon the mind. That is either the proper fitting and ordained shaping influence or there is another voice. We exchange the teacher's voice for autonomy. And we walk our own path. Let me conclude with you this. Remember... To sow a habit is to reap a character. It's not about intellectual capacities. Finally, the conclusion to the matter. To one who has decided to be a person of compulsion, vice, impulse over character, and the noble journey. Verse 26, I'll read the text and we're concluded for this morning. Verse 26. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. This is wisdom's voice. How could she laugh and how could she mock? Because she cried aloud. When terror strikes you like a storm and... Your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Why? Because they hated knowledge. They hated gross facts? No. What do you mean they hated knowledge? They hated the fear of the Lord. You see, the pathway of the fool, of the scoffer, of the simpleton, 
is a path of religious apostasy. It's not neutral. They resist and hate knowledge. About what? The fear of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us in the noble journey to be people of your word, to be those who are in vital relationship through faith to Jesus Christ, our Savior, whereby your spirit indwells us in union to you, offering us all of you and your benefits unto our life. Lord, shape our ethics by your Holy Spirit. Help us to be holistically committed to the gospel and the life of ethics that come with being your people in an age that is wasting away. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your compassion on our ignorance, on our mistakes, on our willful disobedience as we gather every Lord's Day to begin where we ought, to confess our sins and be assured of pardon if we so confess them. Oh God, help us where we are weak in wisdom or willfully ignorant. Strengthen us to be faithful, meaningful lives as your people in this day. In Christ's name I pray, amen.